Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 10, Undertow. As one of the more important professors in the Underground Phoenix Project's educational institution, John Bath frequently met with his mentor, Catherine Rand, the dean of the academy. Despite a 40-year age difference, theirs was an intimate relationship that went beyond that of a teacher and her pupil. In many ways, Bath looked at Rand as the woman who rescued him from a life of either service or privilege. She indoctrinated him into a world of knowledge and the experience of passing that knowledge on to the brightest minds in the Phoenix Project. Bath hadn't met with Rand since he had been chosen and trained to participate in the reconnaissance of Earth's surface. He knew she would question his absence, see through any discomfort he might project, maybe even compel him to give clues about his current assignment. But she made him feel comfortable, safe, necessary, and so he visited her. They sat in the aged Dean's studio, a cozy compartment relegated to the most important members of the academy. Dr. Rand offered John a batch of the best stale Darjeeling tea the Phoenix Project had to offer. Oh, John, it's such a pleasure to see you again. You're so busy. You haven't found the time to visit. Are you well? I... I am, John said, taking a seat. Something's bothering you, Rand quipped. You look so tired. Have you been sleeping? Bath nodded, forcing an awkward grin. Hmm. Rand shook her head. You make everything so complicated, dear. You must take care of yourself. You have to take the supplements if you're not getting enough protein on your vegetarian diet. Bath shrugged. Usually, he enjoyed the way his mentor worried about him. Now, he found it annoying. He had a lot on his mind. He told Dean Rand he was worried about his roommate, Mike Helms, whose lover, Mindy, had unintentionally become pregnant. Is that really what you came here to discuss? Rand asked, a bemused smile on her face. No, Bass said, shifting uncomfortably. I guess not. I just thought that as a person of, of influence, you might be able to help. I'll see what I can do, Rand said, assuring her pupil. A long silence passed between them. Bath inhaled stale air. He thought about being in his simulacrum body on the surface, where he couldn't smell anything. Dean Rand leaned close. What was it you really wanted to talk about, dear? Please, Dr. Rand. Call me John. A knowing grin passed across Rand's wrinkled lips, and for a moment, all John could think about was kissing her passionately. Her holding him, or him holding her. He couldn't remember which and he couldn't remember how many times. They had comforted each other without passion or longing. But it was a kind of love, wasn't it? Of course, Dean Rand relented. I'm sorry. Memory serves to remind an old woman of the pleasures of youth. But our relationship makes you uncomfortable now. I understand. You've moved on. John shook his head. 
No, that's not it. He wasn't sure if he was trying to reassure the older woman or himself. I'm grateful for everything. Rain interrupted. You've never been a flatterer or a fraud, John. I'm old, not stupid. I just mean that... I don't regret anything. I know, Bath's professor nodded, then changed the subject. Now, what brings you here after so long? Bath inhaled deeply. He thought of Harumi Gale, his own protege, the beautiful young prodigy he was deeply attracted to, but was content not to get involved with. Romance with Harumi would be a distraction from the deep intellectual connection they shared. It's hard to talk about it, Bath began. I've been sort of... forced to participate in this project spearheaded by the Shadow Council. John. Dean Rand leaned back and smiled with her whole mouth. I can't imagine you ever being forced into anything, love. For an older woman in an underground world with limited dental facilities, Rand had excellent teeth, a detail John had ignored, forgotten. Yeah, Bath replied. Before he could continue, Rand leaned close, an eyebrow arched. I know, John. Bath instinctively leaned away. You know? Of course I do. John watched his mentor for a long moment. Wait. Are... are you on the Shadow Council? The old woman waved a hand between them, as if John's statement was absurd. Oh, please, John. You know you can't ask someone that, and you know I can't confirm anything one way or the other. What's gotten into you? Bath stood and paced a few feet around the chair in which he was previously sitting. But your knowledge, your experience, you would be... Dean Rand interrupted sharply. Is this really what you wanted to talk to me about? No. It was... I was just thinking about my father a lot lately, and... Rand rolled her eyes. (laughs) Not this again. It's not like that, John insisted. This project I'm working on... It's brought up a lot of memories and and feelings, and... He thought of his father, tried remembering dear Midbath's face. He pushed the idea away, trying to remain logical, in the present. Law enforcement and the Shadow Council insist my father joined the dissidents. They said he was smuggling food to those who didn't work. Rand shrugged. You think your father was punished for his charity? Bath braced himself on the back of the chair. I don't know. Was he? (laughs) John, we've talked about this. Your mother told you about it. Dearmid disappeared. No one knows where he went. The old glint in her eye assured Bath Rand knew more than he did. Well, was he one of the dissidents who tried to find the hatch? The port that leads to the surface? An awkward silence passed between them. Finally, John insisted, pointing at the older woman. Come on, Catherine. You're one of the elders of the Phoenix Project. You know everyone. You've known members of the Council. You know what people say. Rand stood. She turned her back to John and busied herself with a row of trinkets and collectibles on an old wooden shelf. You'd relegate me to a purveyor of idle gossip, John? Rand spoke without looking at her student. Didn't I teach you better than that? Empiricism. Pragmatism. Logic. Reason. Have you finally lost your damned faculties in your ill-disguised anarchism? Bath felt the sting of his teacher's words. 
don't turn this on me. Oh, darling, Rand said, turning, her motions slow but dramatic. If you intend to succeed me as leader of the Academy, you know you must let this go. For the first time in so long, John felt himself overcome with emotion. He was torn between his longing to know about his past, his loyalty to his teacher, and his own self-interests. I can't, John said, turning from Rand. He was afraid if he looked at her, he might cry. The older woman walked around the chair between them. She touched John's elbows softly, soothingly, and turned him slightly. He resisted at first, but eventually faced her. I love you so, John, Dean Rand said, smiling broadly with tears in her eyes. Some would frown on our relationship, but it is one that transcends that of mere teacher and pupil, mentor and disciple, lover, and, sensing the older woman was trying to divert or distract him, John gritted his teeth and spoke plainly. Dean Rand, did my father go to the surface? The dean shook her head, but only slightly, unconvincingly. No, John. I have no clue what happened to Diermid. No one does. Not the Shadow Council, not the Central Processor. He simply disappeared. I understand that in that ever-calculating brain of yours, this is no consolation. But for your own good, if ever I've protected you from the horrors of what's left in this world, then trust me now. This course you are on will only cause you pain, self-destruction, excommunication. I don't care about that, Bath shot back, fighting tears in his own eyes. Rand retreated a little. You must rise above the conceits of yourself, John, your petty objectivism. If you truly care about those in the Phoenix Project, about Harumi, and about your roommate, you must seize the opportunity you've been given. You must chart a course that will bear fruit, not this senseless, self-absorbed descent into the past. All there is, John, is what is. Catherine Rand's words hung in the air between them, a challenge to John's philosophy, his very being. In that moment, whatever intimacy Bath and Rand shared in the past was wiped away, absolved by the knowledge that her fight for truth was over, and his was just beginning. Besides, Rand spoke as she walked away from her pupil. What is the truth, anyway? John watched his mentor walk into the neighboring room as a mechanized voice came over a loudspeaker nearby. Professor John Bath, please report to the laboratory ASAP. Professor John Bath. Rested and ready to resume their exploration of the surface, General Castro, Cuddy, and Bath joined Devenu, Ganaya, and Chang in the laboratory. Bath was the last to arrive. Sorry, John said, uncharacteristically apologetic. It was obvious there was something weighing heavily on him. Devenu spoke. Now that we're all here, General Castro will bring you up to speed, Dr. Bath. Castro reminded Bath of the attack by the mutated people inhabiting Liberty Island. He explained what happened after Bath's simulacrum was damaged, and how Chang repaired Bath's robot body. The mutants, Bath asked, were their deformities all the same? No, Castro explained. Their faces looked similar, but some of them had webbed fingers, claws. Cuddy nodded, and the ones I fought off had thick skin, almost like armor. 
Hmm. Bath scratched his freshly shaven chin. Perhaps pachyderma, or vascularized adipose tissue. Kanaya looked at Chang, then at Bath. You mean elephant skin or blubber? Yes, Bath replied. Adaptive tissue creating a natural defense against the new state of the elements. Castro continued, explaining how he and the Major destroyed the underground vault and computers in the room. Wait, what? Bath asked. Why did you do that? Cuddy stepped towards Bath. We're going forward, Doc. Once we get to Manhattan, we're not going back to Liberty Island. Castro nodded curtly. Correct. We can't risk this technology falling into the hands of our enemies. Bath shifted. What enemies? Devenu stepped forward, as if to moderate between the two explorers. What the general is saying is that we can't ensure your safety in the simulacra if someone else can control them remotely like we can. She paused a moment, gazing around the room. I speak for the council when I say we must have absolute control over this mission and your activities. Bath waved a hand tensely, dismissively. You speak for the council, of course. Devenu turned. Is that a problem for you, doctor? Bath said nothing. Fine, then. Devenu stifled a much-needed breath. It's my understanding Castro and Cuddy secured transportation to Manhattan. The three of you will make your way there as swiftly as possible, and continue your reconnaissance as planned. The project administrator then turned to Engineer Chang and Chief Surgeon Ganaya. Donna, Miral, are the transference modules prepped and ready? They are, Chang reported. Once we transmit, Castro said, we'll wake up in the visitor's center. Right, Devenu continued. Same as before. We'll have about 12 hours before we pull you back for a debrief. Hopefully things will go more smoothly this time. Ganaya took her place before the physical and medical diagnostics. Chang pulled a long lever, and the power cells near the porcelainization chamber sprang to life. A bluish glow emitted from inside the coffins. Gentlemen, Devenu said, good luck. General Castro was the last to have his consciousness ported into his robot body. Cuddy and Bath watched the synthetic skin over the general simulacrum take shape. How long? Castro asked. Quicker than last time, Cuddy assured their leader. Meryl seems to be right. The more we transmit through the green stream, the more we adapt. Good, the general nodded, turning to the doctor. Bath? Feels great to be back, Dr. Bath exclaimed through a smile. He touched the back of his head. Wait, what's this? Cuddy stepped forward and pointed at the area that was damaged in the earlier conflict with the island's inhabitants. That's where your... your head got bashed. You can thank Chang for fixing you. Bath paused a moment, thinking about the implications of being able to transmit one's consciousness in whole or in part from body to body, repairing each simulacrum as it became worn by time, the elements, or enemies. Cuddy led the way out of the visitor center and across Liberty Island. Bath stood between the law enforcement officer and the general. Castro pointed into the water as they boarded the ferry. Cuddy, can you pull that anchor? You got it. Major McGillicuddy bypassed the rust-covered crank and went right to the thick, 
interlaced chains descending into the water. It took longer for Cuddy to acclimate to the added strength and force his simulacrum possessed than it did for him to pull the massive anchor into place. Now, Cuddy said, as he gazed around the deck of the ferry, where was that blowtorch? Out of propane, the general replied. Damn. Castro led the way to the engine room. Don't worry, Major. I'm sure we can find something here we can use as a weapon. This was the first time Dr. Bath had seen the ferry, the first time he had been on a boat of any kind. Castro and Cuddy had already investigated the boat and seemed to know their way around. Cuddy noticed the doctor's trepidation. What's up? I was just thinking. Bath leaned against the wooden railing leading into the first floor engine room. Doesn't it seem like... I don't know, if we carry weapons around, we're looking for a fight? Castro maneuvered expertly inside the engine room. He glanced quickly at dials and fixtures, found the control and throttle. He turned, speaking to both men. If we run into more of those mutants, or worse, I want to be prepared. He pointed at a measure of cord. Bath, untie that cable. The doctor did as instructed. The general started the vessel, priming the fuel into its engine. He throttled the ferry, navigating away from Liberty Island into the Hudson River. Cuddy opened drawers and cupboards. Hopefully we can get our hands on a slug thrower or a missile projector. Castro laughed. <laughs> we used to call them guns. Yeah, a gun. A gun? Bath asked. We're not killers, General. The leader turned watching the weathered Statue of Liberty become smaller in the distance. Look, John, I'm a soldier. I've done things in the service of my country I'm proud of. Others, well, maybe they just had to be done. This isn't war, General. Cuddy groaned, synthetic eyeballs rolling mechanically in his skull. Castro waved a free hand, gave the ferry more gas. No but it is my responsibility to make sure we're successful. The survivors of New York, North America, and I presume the rest of the world haven't been living in a hermetically sealed fallout shelter like the Phoenix Project. Even if they aren't mutants, most people are probably undernourished, underprovisioned, and desperate. Castro paused, checking the gauges. Although his senses of sight and hearing were elevated, the inability to smell fumes or touch anything intensely was difficult getting used to. He wanted to smell the water and the fuel to be assured his boating skills were as acute now as they once were. He nodded at Manhattan in the distance. If I were them, I'd be angry at everyone who has anything I don't. Bath came further into the cabin. Look, I understand, General. I'm just saying, we should do everything we can to ensure violence is our last resort. Cuddy scoffed. He couldn't contain his frustration any longer. <laughs> Always a coward. What? Bass said, turning to Cuddy, then backing up a few inches. I'm a coward because I'm not a fascist who gets off rousting innocent people? Cuddy straightened. That's the last time you call me that. That's enough, Castro insisted. Bath, you make a good point. This is a recon mission. I don't want to harm anyone we don't have to. But you must realize, if we do have to, we must be prepared. Castro turned the wheel of the ship slightly. 
We're not packed in that safe tin box down in the laboratory. Up here, gentlemen, we're free. And so is everyone else. The ferry cruised up the Hudson River. Bass saw Cuddy gazing at the islands in the distance, where scattered smoke plumes rose above the ground. The Major turned to the doctor. Bath, when we first came above ground, you said these fires weren't spontaneous. If humans, or mutants, are responsible for this, what do you think they're burning? I'm not sure. It's likely, though, that it's human waste. No doubt the plumbing is filled without some sort of sanitation control. The doctor shifted his weight, shook his head. It was obvious he was agitated. Cuddy stared at the doctor. What's bothering you? Well, we can't be sure what they're burning because we can't smell anything. I mean, we can see and hear at enhanced levels, but the inability to smell, feel, or taste deeply may hinder our research. Cuddy leaned against the side of the ferry, turning away from the water. He closed his eyes and focused, testing his auditory sensors, tuning into distant sounds along the shoreline. He was pleased he was able to tune out Dr. Bath's voice at will. A little later, the general called for their attention. There, he looked up. Battery Park. Hopefully we can... What the hell is that? Bath interrupted. He walked forward. Cuddy focused on brilliant orange and crimson light along the shoreline. Fire, he said. I know it's fire, Bath nodded. But why is it in a long ribbon like that? Why is it moving? General Castro hunched over. Keep your voices down, he insisted. I'm killing the engine. Castro dialed back the throttle. The engine sputtered. The ferry drifted. Cuddy, Castro turned. Head to the upper deck. Keep your body low to the rail. Let us know what you see. Dr. Bath watched as Castro seemed to inhale deeply, then exhale. What do you think, John? The older man asked. Bath shook his head. There's no way there could still be areas on the island on fire. It looks man-made, something combustible. I suppose lightning could have set fire to something. Castro interrupted. There used to be a waste barge that ran out to Staten Island. Maybe they got lazy, Bath nodded. Maybe they just dumped their garbage here. Castro nodded. Hmm. Most of the island is rubble or garbage. Why bring it here? Major McGillicuddy shuffled down the stairs and leapt into the cabin. What did you see? Castro asked. Looks like a grouping of those... those mutants. They've gathered all along the shoreline. The fire is coming from torches in the ground. How many? Castro asked. At least a hundred, maybe more. Looks like they're armed with spears, clubs, and knives. Castro nodded, rubbing his chin instinctively. Did you see any other boats? Cuddy shook his head. None. It's possible they're looking for this one, then. They're friends. Castro nodded in the direction of Liberty Island. We need to find another port of entry. What about the tunnel? John asked. Cuddy looked at Bath. What tunnel? Leading up to their first transference into the robot bodies and reconnaissance of Liberty Island, Dr. Bath read as much as he could about New York and the surrounding area. While his expertise was not in geography, he gleaned and memorized everything he could from available maps, however outdated they may be. 
My research showed a tunnel near here. It was an old submarine toll tunnel that ran three miles from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Wait a minute, Cuddy said. What are you suggesting? Before Bath could respond, a shot echoed out in the distance. Something clanged against the reinforced metal in front of them. Down, Castro shouted. They're shooting at us, Bath stated the obvious. You think? Cuddy pushed a scientist to the wooden deck. Kill the interior lights, Castro ordered. Cuddy retreated to the electrical closet at the back of the bridge. Crouching low, he reached up, flicking a switch in the fuse box. What now? he asked General Castro, who propped himself on one knee. Bath is right. We can't stay here. We have to leave. More shots rang out from the shoreline, this time crossing the front of the ferry and piercing the glass windows. Cuddy turned to Bath, then to the general. Look, we can't jump ship and swim up a tunnel. Why not? Bath asked. Flustered, Cuddy pointed at Bath. Well, do you know how to swim? Bath shook his head. No, but I'm a quick study, he replied confidently. General, Cuddy implored. Even if we do find a portal to this tunnel he's talking about, we'll flood it with water. Castro called to one side of the bridge. You mean if it's not flooded already? He peered over the side, trying to focus, to zoom in on the figures at the shoreline firing on them. Well, yeah, but we can't hold our breath for three miles. That's insane. Dr. Bath crawled across the deck. He crouched between General Castro and Major McGillicuddy. We don't have to hold our breath, he said. What? Cuddy asked. Castro nodded. He's right. The pseudoskin protects the robot body from the elements and the pressure. The simulacrum doesn't need to breathe. This is nuts, Cuddy said, shaking his head. Castro looked at Dr. Bath, then at Cuddy. If you have a better idea, Major, now's the time. Gunfire cracked the windows and dug into wooden planks. Another round of fire whizzed past Castro, Cuddy, and Bath as they hurried to the upper level. Castro pointed into the river below. As Cuddy hesitated, Bath jumped first. The Major watched as Bath disappeared into the inky blackness. He turned quickly, then felt the General's hand firm on his shoulder. The next thing Major McGillicuddy knew, he was submerged. Water swelled around Cuddy. He recalled his conditioning in the Phoenix Project's gymnasium. As a member of law enforcement, he had access to the gym's pod, a massive orb suspended by hydraulics. Sealed inside the pod, officers in training could work out in a variety of simulated environments at different degrees of resistance. Fighting diminishing pressure or increased gravity, Major McGillicuddy and his peers walked or jogged, climbed moving walls, hovered in place, swimming in midair. Whether rotating slow or fast, the pod forced every major muscle group to work. Despite his conditioning and training, Cuddy knew it was foolish to believe sparring in the gymnasium or workouts in the pod would prepare him mentally to control the simulacrum in an environment he had never been in. Nonetheless, Cuddy did his best to swim. He had no choice. In the darkness, Cuddy's vision adjusted. He watched Bath several feet ahead, swimming confidently, gliding between wreckage, sunken steel and raised concrete. If Bath could do it, Cuddy thought, so could he. At first, the Major flailed desperately. Then, he felt his body adapting to the environment. Eventually, Cuddy caught up to Bath. They hovered over a closed porthole with a pressure seal. Bath pointed. Cuddy nodded and braced himself over the seal and turned a wheel connected to the hatch, opening the valve. 
A wave of bubbles floated between Bath and Cuddy. Bath pried open the porthole, fighting against pressure escaping the tube. Cuddy held the portal open, watching as Bath was suddenly sucked inside. With one swift motion, Cuddy held the hatch open. He stared into the mouth of the tube, barely resisting the force of water swallowing him. Finally, the weight of water overpowered Major McGillicuddy, and he lost his grip. Eyes closed, Cuddy plunged headlong into the winding tube below him. Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production. Based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Fire Pit Creative Group.